Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Last Word. I am joined by my two amazing co-hosts this morning. We have... Johnny Young here. That is Johnny Young here. Speaking very loudly. Speaking very loudly. <laughs> he, like, puffed up his chest and yeah. put the microphone in his face. He's excited to be here. Voice. I'm glad and to be here. I'm Paulina, and I'm glad to be here. Okay, good. I'm glad that you're glad to be here, because it wouldn't be the same if you weren't glad to be here, and if you didn't have that punchline. So, glad you're here. (laughs) Well, this morning, we're here to talk about um, what we learned at Crosstalk last week in Romans and continuing on that journey, and we heard a message from JD talking about how we as believers and um, in the context of Romans um, can be hypocritical, and we think that we're better than other people, as the Israelites did and as the Mm -hmm. Jewish leaders did at the time. And so I want to know how we as believers now can see it as a humbling and actually a really hopeful thing that we're just as morally broken as the rest of humanity, like the Jewish leaders were back in the time of Jesus. Yeah, I am thinking about light, and I was thinking about Jesus's own words about how we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I think the key for me when I think about that and being both about times where I can be very hypocritical too, Mm -hmm. and I think the key is that I normally, if that happens, I think that I'm the light. You know, I think that I have something to bring, that I've somehow gained my salvation, that I bring something to the table instead of realizing that it's God who makes me a light, you know, and it's His Holy Spirit and it's His Jesus's sacrifice that gives me a place, you know, that makes me be able to stand and do and love other people or try the way that God has loved me all because Mm -hmm. He is the light, you know, and that's not something I have in me because I think I say all that to say, I think if I I think I have that in me, then that's what creates a separation. And I think, oh, I have something. I'm special. I'm mm-hmm. the chosen one, like uh, JD referenced from Harry Potter, instead of like yeah. um, knowing that it is God who is light. You know, and any yeah. part of that that we have is by His mercy and grace and not something that I've earned, you know, and therefore what you said, Cam, we're all in the same, we're all there together. You know, if we want to be, we can be a part and not be hypocritical thinking that we bring something special mm-hmm. to the table. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I like what you said. And I like to think of the humbling aspect that we, as the Israelites, you know, think that we're at a higher spot, more favored by God and place ourselves on this pedestal. And um, when I'm humbled, you know, I'm taken off this pedestal and given perspective. And it really opens my heart, opens my eyes to, you know, just seeing others, how God sees them. And that's what's happening here with the Israelites that Paul's trying to do to them. He's trying to take them off this pedestal that they believe that they, you know, belonged on. Mm -hmm. And he's showing them that like, no, Jesus, you know, suffered on that cross exactly as much for you as he did for any other Gentile out there, which is so tough to wrap their heads around and tough for us to wrap our heads around even today. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. Such a good reminder that 
he is goodness and he is mercy. And without him, we have no goodness and we have no mercy and we have no light. It's such a, again, like a humbling reminder that we cannot do anything without him. And apart from him, we have no good thing. And we need to abide in him to have that, that we can take to the world, the good news and the gospel and all the light. And we also heard JD talk about a survey, which really, really blew my mind, Mm -hmm. where over 50% of believers in the United States, uh, in the in the survey, in this pool of the survey, didn't actually believe what they said that they believed. And that was really mind-blowing to me and really shocking. But for us as the church, how can we as believers stand in the gap of that? Not just for unbelievers to be that light, like we talked about for Jesus, but also as accountability for other believers to say like, hey, this is our purpose. Like we have to believe what we say we believe and walk in that. How do you think we can stand in the gap of that? Um, I think with, I also think that was a staggering thing Mm -hmm. to hear. Um, and it also reminded me how we really have to be careful. I think the way that faith and works go together, Mm -hmm. well, probably from a lot of angles, you know? Um, but I do believe personally that that stuff will always happen inside out. You know, Mm -hmm. I can't like Mm -hmm. ask Cam to hold, I can't hold her accountable and yet not do the same to myself. You know, I can't like try to raise, you know, to say, Kim, believers act like this, and yet I'm not doing the same. And I think with the, like, what JD talked about with, like, the belief and then listing actions that tend to be connected to our beliefs, I think... For me, a lot of the reason why I've been, why I might have been one of those 50% in different parts of my life was because I approached it like I'm doing all of these things Mm -hmm. first so that I can earn something, you know, whether that be salvation or so that God's pleased with me, Mm -hmm. instead of realizing that it really is inward first. And if we allow God to transform us, from the inside out, then I really think like, as we do that, the people around us see that, you know, and then the people around them see that. And then we become people that are trying to be transformed by Jesus instead of people that are either on the like all works, you know, or no works side. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. I always fail when I try to just skip to, let me just Mm -hmm. do just the good actions to transform, you know, myself or Jesus. But really it's, yeah, Jesus transforms mm-hmm. our heart, which leads to, mm-hmm. you know, our mind and our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that statistic was very sad to hear. And I'm sure that I have fallen in it many times. And I think a big thing about it is that when you go to, you know, a mission trip somewhere outside the U.S., uh, a lot of people, you know, you get you get thankful that you have water and everything. But one of the biggest takeaways that I hear time and time again, and for me, was that Jesus was everything to every single person there. Mm-hmm. That like no matter they would lose family members, they would you know lose their house. They had nothing, but instead of you know complaining about that or worrying about what job to get or anything, like Jesus mm-hmm. still meant everything mm-hmm. to them. He was so real and personal and close to them. Mm-hmm. And I think in the U.S. we find it so easy that I don't know if it's because we find ourselves you know getting distracted so much, but Jesus is almost like a behind the scenes type of character to us sometimes that. You know, he's really big in our lives, but he's not really the main character and as close as, you know, we should be having him because he's a personal God that desires that close relationship with us. Mm -hmm. But when we put him on the back burner, you know, we can say we believe in him, but really our actions are contradicting that. And I've Mm -hmm. fallen short of that many times. Mm -hmm. But I think that's a big thing is that, you know, we need to bring him closer as, you know, a friend, a father, 
And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, he just mm-hmm. wants to be there for us. Yeah, that's really good. As JD was telling that statistic, and Paulina, you kind of touched on this, I, I can't help but think about like how within the church and people who identify as believers and outside, also people who don't know Jesus, like it all comes down to like relationship. And it's not like yeah. this external thing that we need to fix. It all comes down mm-hmm. to like, it's a relationship problem. And mm-hmm. like the Jesus just needs to be the source. And sometimes like that relationship is just either not there or there's so many like, I don't know, like interwoven like things within there that's keeping us from him and like getting in the way. Mm-hmm. So it's so good, such a good reminder. And uh, Paulina, you kind of touched on a little bit the transformation of G- that Jesus brings like to us. And so I'm curious, like as believers, we want the love of Jesus to transform every part of our lives and everything we say and everything we do. And so for everyone out there who who wants to do that, but maybe they're new to to Jesus and like don't know where to start, like what would you say is like a good like first step towards that? Or like how how can people put themselves in that position if they've never like this is totally new to them? Like what would you say to them and like what advice would you give? Hmm. Um I think starting with what Johnny said about Jesus being everything, mm-hmm. you know, that really like that that's not a practical to do, but that's it, you know. Yep. So like, mm-hmm. I was I felt really convicted because I was in having some quiet time, and I felt like God stopped me in my tracks and was like, "Stop! You're not trying to recreate an experience. You're trying to approach and draw near to a person, you know, mm-hmm. to a being that is God and is Jesus, you know, and the fact that He." wants to be with us. And I think really, really practically, like if we just spend, try to spend time with Him and it doesn't have to look one certain way, but that's the point of what Mm -hmm. I felt like God convicted me with, you know, was that I was going in with like, okay, this it's this whole experience, you know, so I need to like read first and then write this and then, you know, and I need to, I want like this from God and I want to hear this, you know, instead Mm -hmm. of like, I never treat people like that. You know, like I don't sit down with someone and think like, okay, Cam, here's what I want to get out of you. You know, it's like, no, I go spend time with you. You know, whatever happens in our time together happens. And I think doing the same with God, He really, there's so many things to supplement, like so many podcasts, so many books, so many devos. But really, I think at the heart, if we just want to get to know who God is, I feel Mm -hmm. like that's a great next step for all of us, regardless of how long we've been walking with Him or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. And I like to think of the, uh, in the Crusades, you know, the Crusaders, they would get baptized and hold that one hand up with the sword because they're like, I want all of my body to be saved, you know, by Christ. But my hand, you know, that's going to stay here with the world. And like, I'm going to be allowed to kill and stuff. Like, it just does not work like that. And so I would encourage anyone that's kind of a newer believer to first start with the gospel. And I mean, John's usually the go-to. It's a really good one, you know. (laughs) big emphasis on Jesus being, you know, Lord of all. And as you're doing that and reading, you know, maybe even a chapter a night, just try to figure out what is your hand that you're lifting above the water and what are the parts that you're just really trying to keep from God? Because, you know, that is scary and the devil is going to do any small or large thing to keep you from wanting to give up, you know, whatever last body part you're leaving out. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that could be, you know, a relationship or that could be an addiction or just any bad habits. And, yeah, I would just try to keep uh, including people in your relationship. And so hopefully they can help you like identify that and just draw nearer to God. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. Really good stuff. And um, I'm reminded that uh, our transformation by Jesus doesn't happen by us like praying and then like coming apart from Jesus and like trying to conjure up and like mm-hmm. fix For ourselves sure. and, and try to just like 
I don't know, pull ourselves out of our own mess. It comes by spending time with Him. And I think it just comes down to that simplicity, like loving God truly and loving others and like Mm -hmm. seeing the work that He does when we're in that that mindset and that heart space is really, really beautiful to see Mm -hmm. unfold. So Mm -hmm. really good stuff, you guys. And I'm going to hand it over to Paulina with any upcoming things that we have. Um, Yeah, I did want to add really quick. I just thought of this, but I wrote it down because when JD said um, he was, I think, talking about his own story, and it was just a really small part, but the words just clicked with me. And Mm -hmm. he said that he was keeping up an image, trying to keep himself safe Mm -hmm. and like in the hypocritical part, you know, so like believe doing the right thing for certain settings, which like Johnny was talking about can be really controversial. You know, like you can do the right things in a one setting, like a Sunday morning setting, and then the right thing on a weekend setting, depending on the people you're with is a totally different thing that contradicts. Mm -hmm. But I felt like that was really profound for JD to share because I think like for us, for all of us, and especially like when you're starting your relationship with God, we just need to ask Him to shed off that old stuff. You know, all the the things, the defenses, the like image, all of that that we've been trying to keep up with, you know, and that's why like being with God is such a vulnerable thing because He knows all those things. And if we let Him, He will throw away, you know, like get rid of all that stuff and help us become new. And I just think that was something really Mm -hmm. um, cool that JD shared and just really ties in with what we're talking about. And so um, with this month, we've been talking about how the gospel reveals God's righteousness, and we have a couple weeks left, um, and I'm excited for this week. I think it's going to connect really well and help us see more and more of God's righteousness and how we play a part in that. Good to be with you guys today. I am so grateful. I'm hoping that at this point we've gotten all of the like adverse weeks out of the way. That The rest of the semester is going to be normal. That's my hope, at least. I don't do super well with all of the uncertainty, and I'm sure that for you guys it might be something that like transitioning between online learning and being in class and then having class canceled and then trying to catch up, it would have caused me a bunch of stress when I was in college. And so I can only feel for you guys. And as I think about that, I was, as a kid, kind of an anxious kid. I always was. I I, kind of liked to be in control as a kid. And when I was thinking about that this week, I was reflecting on the fact that usually when you're a kid, your parents tell you that you can be whatever you want when you grow up. You can be whatever you want. And I remember very specifically that my mom told me when I was a little kid that she thought that there was something that I would be very bad at when I grew up. And that was actually being a teacher. Because I was an anxious kid and because I was an impatient kid, she's like, you would be the worst teacher in the whole world. And now that that greatly changed as I got older and I matured, I became more patient as a human being. But it's it truly, I love, love, love to teach. And I'm so grateful that I get to do that in the context here with Crosstalk every week. But the other place that I'd love to do it is in every job I've had, I've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to teach and to train. And so when I worked out at Camp Eagle, I got the, I got the opportunity to be the wilderness director out there. And so every May, I would have a new group of summer staff come out, college kids just like you guys. And we would have four weeks of training before they ever got to go on a trip or work with students or anything like that, we would do four weeks of training with them. 
And those were just my favorite four weeks of summer because in the wilderness program, that meant that we had people with all of these skill ranges, people who had never slept outside before to people who slept on the ground all the time. And so what I got to do is I got to teach them all of the skills that they would need to go on a wilderness trip. So I taught them how to pack a backpack. What clothes do you need when you're going to live outside for a week? I got to teach them how to cook over camp stoves. I got to teach them how to build shelters and put up their tents. I got to teach them how to sleep on the ground. I taught them how to find water, and then when we would go on the river, how to paddle rapids. And so I loved this part of the summer because it was everything wrapped up in one. We got the chance to hang out for long periods of time, these really cool trips, and I got to teach. And in teaching, I, the philosophy that I used a lot when I was working out there is that I would, I would teach somebody how to do a skill. And then I would practice that skill, and then they would have a chance then to try. And so I would model for them. And so I remember very specifically the first summer that I was in charge of everything. And we're on the river, and we're about to go down our first rapid. And so I have everybody kind of head to the shore at the top of the rapids. We all pull to the side of the bank. And so I teach them, this is how you go down a rapid. Here is how you don't get stuck. Here's how you don't end up swimming. And very specifically on this rapid, there's one really big rock. And basically the advice is don't hit the rock. There's only one thing you have to do. Don't hit the rock. So I make this big, huge deal out of it. And then I feeling confident, I'm going to go down and model how to do this perfectly. And I missed a paddle stroke, and I immediately hit said rock that I said, don't hit the rock. I flip my boat over. All of my stuff is now floating down the river, and I am swimming to go get all of my stuff while a staff of 15 people just laughs at me. And I think that we all have these really hypocritical moments in our life where we believe that we know the right way to do something, we believe that we are the expert in something, or that this is, this is just how you do something. So we have, the, we have the level of expertise to help people. And so we act out of our pride, and then oftentimes we make a fool out of ourselves because we fail in doing the exact same thing that we told everybody that you had to do it this way because I am the expert in doing it. This most often happens for me in my house with my wife. Because in my human pride, there are moments where I decide to step in and help my wife Taylor with something that she is already attempting to fix for herself. Now note, she doesn't ask for my help, and I step in and I mansplain how to do something for her, and then I don't solve the problem, and usually it's because I'm doing the exact same thing that she was already doing, and so I can't fix the problem, and I look dumb, and very rightfully so, and hopefully she feels incredibly vindicated every time it happens. Because these are these incredibly hypocritical moments for me where it's like, hey, get out of the way, I know, I know what I'm doing, and then I go and I screw things up, or I do the exact same thing that she was already doing. And all the time. And it's often in a moment where we think we are better 
than someone else because we have a certain skill, we have a certain knowledge base, or we have a certain level of expertise that we think qualifies us to tell someone how to do something else. And so we act out of pride to solve someone's problem, and then usually it blows up in our face, and we look silly, and very rightfully so. And if you guys joined us last week, you'll remember that we talked about idolatry. We talked about idolatry and how that ultimately means that we're finding significance in created things. And when we find significance in created things, we're giving ultimate allegiance to things that are not God. And Paul tells us that this has resulted in a distortion of our humanity and our participation in self-destructive behaviors. The result of which is that we stand guilty as charged before a holy and perfect God. To this, Paul's fellow Israelites might respond out of pride and arrogance and say, well, it sure is a good thing that we are God's chosen people and that he has given us the laws of the Torah, things like keeping the Sabbath and obeying all of the food laws and practicing circumcision. And this sets us apart from everybody else in the world. And it shows that we are living as God's holy people. And I don't know how many of you guys watch college game day on a Saturday morning, but what Paul says to this sentiment of uh, exceptionality is he says, not so fast. And I wish I had a good Lee Corso voice for that, for those of you guys who watch College Game Day. But he says, not so fast. What Paul is going to do today is he's going to recall the story of the Torah in the rest of the Old Testament for us. And by doing this, he shows us that Israel was just as sinful, just as idolatrous, and just as morally broken as the rest of humanity. And in fact, he says that Israel is more guilty than the Gentiles because they had been given the Torah. They should have known better. And as a result, they now stand just as condemned as the rest of humankind. So we're going to hop in to the story. We're going to start in Romans Chapter 2, verse 12, if you guys want to open up there with me, or it's going to be on the screen behind me. And it says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the law, that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. For us to understand this part of the passage, we have to realize that Paul is creating a hypothetical situation right here. What he's doing is he's saying, what if there exists a people, not 
sharing in God's, in Israel's special privileges in whom the purposes of God expressed in the Torah are being fulfilled. In other words, what if there's this people in the world who don't share the being God's chosen people, but they follow the laws of the, old, of the Torah? Would they not upstage or replace Israel as God's chosen people then? And what Paul is saying is he's saying, yes, such a people are members of the renewed covenant. That's what being a Jew is all about, following the law. This is his point. So he goes on in verse 17 and he says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself or a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul's introductory question here is designed as a challenge to the Jewish people. You claim to be a Jew, but are you true to it? You talk the talk, are you walking the walk? Are you backing up what you, who you say you are with your actions is ultimately what he is challenging them with. In verse 17, we see the word boast. And in English, this word almost always has a very negative connotation to it. But the remarkable part about if you were to go back to the Greek is that it can have a positive or a negative connotation in the Greek. And so what Paul is doing is it's actually not negative. He here is saying, yes, I'm challenging you, but he isn't rejecting this, rejecting the specialness of the nation of Israel as God's chosen people. At this stage, he is simply questioning whether those who claim to be God's people have given up the right to do so because of their actions. Those who claim to be God's people, have they given up their right to call themselves that because their actions do not match? Have you guys ever seen Harry Potter? Most people in the room, I feel like I've tried recently with some movie references, and I'm about 50-50 so far. So I feel like this is the highest probability is that you guys have seen Harry Potter. Sweet. There we go. There we go. Okay, in the Goblet of Fire, Harry needs a date for the Yule Ball. He needs a date for the Yule Ball. So he and Hermione are in the library at this point in time, and Hermione is trying to help him find a date for the Yule Ball. And Hermione points out a girl in the library who is interested in Harry. Ramilda Vane, I believe, is the name. Can somebody confirm that? So it's Ramilda Vane. And she says to Harry, she's only interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. She's only interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. To which Harry responds, well, I am the chosen one, is his response. 
and Hermione immediately hits him in the back of the head with a library book. This is basically the same situation. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, Jews, you in essence are God's chosen people. And Paul is hitting them with the Torah saying, but you fail to keep the laws by which you define yourself. If you are God's chosen people, why do your actions not match? He goes on in verse 23 and he says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking his law. That's it right there. He's basically saying, you who are people of the Old Testament, who hold the Torah as this special thing that signifies that you are God's chosen people, you dishonor God by breaking the very thing you hold special. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The sin Paul is calling out has resulted in the failure of Israel to be God's people and a light to the Gentile world. He goes on in verse 25, he says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision remains uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And what Paul demonstrates for here, for us here is that Israel, called to be the light of the world, has become part of the darkness. The primary purpose of this passage is simply to highlight the failure of Israel to embody the covenant principles that God has entrusted them with to be a light in a dark world. Paul concludes in chapter 3 that all humanity, both Jews and Gentiles then, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. Romans 3.9 says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He's saying here that no one can avoid the effects of our sin nature. That it is a common problem for all of humanity. And therefore, no one is any better than anyone else as a result. We all stand before God as guilty. He goes on in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, and he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, God's, sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That by the law, the Israelites have only come to a deeper understanding of their own brokenness and hopelessness to keep all of the covenant promises of God. Now, before we consider what this means for us as modern believers, we first need to stop and recognize the context here. 
We talked about this in week one, that the Bible is contextually rooted, and that means that it's written to a specific people in a specific time. So we have to recognize here that Paul is writing to address and confront the Jewish people specifically. He's confronting the Jewish people specifically, and it's in that light that the Jewish people stand condemned as failing to be the light that God has called them to be in a dark and broken world. But at another level altogether, we as modern Christian readers cannot escape the discomfort of this passage. The reason for that discomfort is that the church, both locally and globally, stands equally under the condemnation of a passage like this. The church stands under condemnation of a passage like this. Jesus calls us to be the light of the world and to embody both in our private lives and in our public lives the generous love of the creator, God. Now, there are many churches and plenty of individual Christians, of course, who fully embody a transformed life as a result of the gospel. But the discomfort that we feel makes it necessary to consider the, the question that Paul asks the Jewish people in this passage. In verse 21, he says, you who want to teach others, can you not teach yourselves? You who want to teach others, can you not teach yourselves? In other words, does your life match what you are preaching? Are you living a life that is truly transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ? In verse 28 and 29, Paul hits on this idea of outward sign and inward reality. Specifically, he talks about the mark of being the people of God for the Jews. Circumcision doesn't make someone a member of God's covenant people. It is not outward actions. Rather, it is the circumcision of the heart that claims identity as a child of God. It's the inward reality of someone's life. And it's in this tension of outward versus inward that drives the conviction we feel when we read a passage like this. And here's what I mean by that. When I was in college, I was really, really good at the outward. I was really good at doing all of the right things. I said all of the right things. I quoted all of the right scripture. I discipled others. I was at community group. I went to church on Sunday morning. And I looked like what you would want for the perfect prototypical Christian. And that was the image that I wanted everybody to see. But inwardly, I was a mess. I was a total mess. I was consumed by idolatry. My heart was still oriented towards the pleasures of this world. I still wanted that college life that the world tells you is going to be fun and fulfilling. So my Friday and Saturday nights were filled with drinking too much, looking to other people to find affection and meaning and value in their eyes, looking to groups of friends to say that I belonged by me participating in all sorts of things that I knew I shouldn't have been doing. 
Now, I believed, I believed wholeheartedly that a life of following Jesus was more abundant than the pleasures of this world. I was telling others that, but my life did not match in any form or fashion. I wasn't allowing Jesus to transform my life and change the way that I lived. I could talk the talk, but I definitely wasn't walking the walk. I knew what God's word said, but I wasn't allowing it to change my heart. And it wasn't until I fully surrendered to God and allowed the Lord to take control of my life that I finally began to change. And oh my gosh, it was like the biggest weight in the entire world was lifted off my shoulders because I spent all of this time trying to keep up appearances, to portray an image that I felt like would keep me safe, that would make God happy. But finally, my desires were being changed because I allowed the Lord into those areas of my life and said, I want something more than this because I was left feeling empty every time I went and participated. There was a Barna study done in 2013 that surveyed thousands of people in the United States who professed to be Christians. So from all sorts of ethnicities, all sorts of denominations, all sorts of backgrounds, and that probably includes people who are really devoted followers of Jesus Christ and people who were just nominal Christians, who said that they were Christian in name only. Maybe they came to church on Christmas and Easter. So they did this study of thousands of Christians across the United States, and they asked them a series of scaling questions. And they were supposed to rate themselves on the scale about whether or not their actions and beliefs matched a statement that was given. So it would be a scale of one to 10, and 10 would be that I fully agree with this. One would be that I disagree with this. And they were given action statements like, I am personally spending time with non-believers to help them follow Jesus. And they were given attitude statements like, I see God-given value in every person regardless of their past or present condition. Now, at the end of that study, they concluded that over 50% of Christians surveyed had beliefs that did not match their actions that they professed that they saw God-given value in every human being, but their actions did not match what they said that they believed. Over 50% of people surveyed said that their actions did not match what they said that they believed. Now, when they do surveys like that, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a group in that survey that is representative of the whole of Christianity in this country. And so if we just for a second broaden that out from several thousand people to say all of the people who are Christians in the United States today, that means that over half of the people who are Christians in the United States today do not live in a way that matches what they say they believe. Over 50 percent. Want to know why the church is getting smaller in the United States? 
want to know why the top two words used to describe Christians by non-believers in this country is judgmental and hypocritical? This study gives us the answer to those questions. Because people are professing a faith in Jesus Christ, but are not living a life that is transformed by the gospel in any meaningful way. And that is remarkable to me. Very simply, we are not living lives that have been transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We allow it to affect our morality. We allow it to affect our eternity. But we don't allow it to impact the way that we treat people and the decisions that we make on an everyday basis. So instead, let's not follow that trend. Let's be people who will fully surrender ourselves to the love and grace of Jesus Christ and allow him to work in our hearts and in our lives so that we live in a transformed manner. A people where the truth of the gospel has seeped into every crevice of our being. We can't help but live in new and different ways because of what we have encountered in Jesus Christ. That is going to be the way that the gospel affects our community here at Texas State. When we stop telling people how to act and how to live and what to believe, when our actions don't match that, let's instead be a people who lead with how we live and how we love the communities that are around us because that is ultimately going to be the thing that makes people see the goodness of Jesus Christ. It's when our actions match what we say we believe. When we start living lives that are truly transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds incredibly simple to say. And I realize that it is a simplistic way of understanding this. But the process of sanctification is giving more and more of ourselves to more and more of God every single day. And it's a moment by moment, a day by day thing. We don't wake up tomorrow and become this perfect group of people who love everybody well and our mistakes and our habits and our hangups are left behind us. But I can tell you that our ability to minister to others is only going to grow when they begin to see the small, minuscule changes that happen in us on a day-to-day basis. When we become more like Jesus on a day-to-day basis and we give ourselves over to the work that God wants to do in our lives. Let me pray. Father God, Jesus, I, when I read passages like this, Lord, I, I get easily intimidated. Lord, I feel convicted. I feel condemned by them, God, and it, and it feels like this hopeless or insurmountable thing. But God, I am so grateful, Jesus, that you take us right where we are, that you take us right where we are without, 
with all of our baggage, with all of our hurts, with all of our habits, with all of our hangups, God, and you begin to do miraculous things in our life, Jesus. And all that you ask of us is that we more and more surrender to you every day, God. And so, Father, I, I surrender myself to you right now, God. And Lord, I ask that you begin to do your work in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, that so, so that what we say we believe about the goodness of you is lived out in the present reality of our everyday life. Lord, that it, that it changes the way that we love and care for people in our classrooms, in our workplaces, in our homes, and in our families, God. And Jesus, we throw ourselves on your grace, recognizing that it is only by your power, God. So we ask that you would do mighty things in our lives, Lord, that you would do mighty things in our community, God, and that ultimately more people on this campus would come to know you because of that. We pray this all in your name.